0: This is Rachel Fields and Sam Swartz with your local news coming to you live from the WORT studios in beautiful downtown Madison. Here are tonight's headlines.
1: A new study from Verona based health giant Epic finds that patients diagnosed with opioid addiction in emergency rooms rarely get a prescription to treat their addiction. The Capital Times reports that less than 8% of opioid addiction patients were found to have been prescribed medications to treat their addiction, well below what experts say is the right prescription level. Addiction treatment medications can reduce withdrawal symptoms and decrease the rate of overdose and some, like bruprenorphine, are available with a prescription outside of a drug clinic. More well-known addiction treatment medications like methadone are only available inside of a treatment program. The study from researchers at EPIC used used patient data available from the company's nearly 200 million patient records across all 50 states.
0: Governor Evers vetoed a package of bills late last week that would have increased requirements for unemployment assistance, reports the Associated Press. People receiving unemployment assistance must be actively seeking work. The bills proposed by the legislature would have increased the amount of auditing the Department of Workforce Development would do to check that recipients were following the guidelines. Meanwhile, Evers did approve other legislative items last Friday. He signed into law a measure to increase the sentence for somebody convicted of providing drugs that lead to an overdose, as well as a law to expand victims' rights during parole hearings.
1: As of August 1st, Wisconsin is now entirely surrounded by states that allow cannabis consumption in some form, promoting democratic or excuse me, prompting democratic lawmakers to renew their call for cannabis legalization in the state. Currently, many Wisconsin residents travel out of state to buy cannabis, mostly to Illinois, where Wisconsinites contribute to more than 36 million dollars in tax revenue, according to the state, according to the Wisconsin State Journal. Governor Evers has proposed legalizing marijuana in the state multiple times, including the most recent budget he introduced. The proposals have been shot down by the Republican legislature each time. This year, however, the legislature has granted a hearing for medical or excuse me, medicinal marijuana use with a possible measure introduced later this year.
0: State Attorney General Josh Call filed a motion today asking Judge Diane Schlipper to formalize her ruling on his lawsuit against the 1849 Wisconsin law banning abortion. Call had previously argued that the 19th century law did not apply to abortion, a position that the judge had echoed in a previous decision. Call asked the judge to move forward in her decision without further oral argument, according to Channel 3000 News. The move would expedite the case to the new, liberal-dominated Wisconsin Supreme Court.
1: The Wisconsin Veterans Museum announced today that it has received a federal grant for more than $60,000 to go towards digitizing their collection. The project focuses on digitalizing old photos that are sensitive to light and touch, and then making them available to the public on the museum's database. And now, on to today's top stories.
0: The Wisconsin Supreme Court has been at ideological odds in the last week after Judge Judge Protisiewicz's ascension to the court last Tuesday. The new liberal majority's first promo point of action was to fire the long-standing conservative director of state courts last Wednesday. Most recently, the liberal justices are fighting to strip the chief, chief justice of her authority after she reprimanded their previous actions. WORT reporter Elizabeth Walsh has the update.
2: Wisconsin's conservative Supreme Court Chief Justice Annette Ziegler is alleging a liberal coup. That's after the new liberal majority took aim at her position last Friday. The liberal majority voted to reduce the authority of the chief justice by establishing a committee that would oversee her administrative decisions. Those decisions include traditional rules, such as when to hear cases and when to convene the court. Today, Chief Justice Annette Ziegler called out the liberal majority for undermining her authority and stripping her power. Speaking to conservative Milwaukee talk host Dan O'Donnell, Ziegler says that the move is straight up unconstitutional.
3: These rules that govern the CLEAR AUTHORITY AND UNDERSTOOD AUTHORITY BY EVERY JUDICIAL OFFICER IN THE HISTORY OF THE STATE AT LEAST FOR THE LAST 40 YEARS. Um, IT'S BEEN UNDERSTOOD AS CLEAR. IT'S IMPORTANT TO HAVE SOMEONE BE ABLE TO BE THE ADMINISTRATIVE HEAD, SCHEDULE THE CASES, CONVENE THE COURT, MAKE SURE ALL SEVEN PEOPLE ARE PRESENT, TO HAVE A VOICE AT THE TABLE, There are seven justices on the Wisconsin Supreme Court, and each one deserves to be heard at scheduled meetings where there is an agenda prepared. There is one person who does that, and that's the chief justice.
2: In a statement last Friday, Ziegler berated the liberals' tactics, calling the move a, quote, secret, unscheduled, and illegitimate closed meeting, unquote. As well as calling them rogue members of the court, in today's interview, she described the move as
3: lawless bullying. The wrecking bulbs completely unprecedented, procedurally flawed, legally flawed.
2: But the court's liberal majority maintains it's been open about the process. In a statement, also last Friday, Liberal Justice Rebecca Dallet said Ziegler denied requests in May and June to review administrative changes. Dallet maintained that all seven members of the court, Chief Justice Ziegler included, were informed of last Friday's vote, and she rebuked the chief justice for publicly litigating the court's disagreements. A 2015 constitutional amendment approved by voters dictates that the court's majority elects its own chief justice. That was a switch from the longest-serving justice automatically obtaining the position, according to reporting from the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel. Ziegler is only the second chief justice to be appointed under the new system. She was elected to serve a second two-year term as chief justice in March. After the swearing-in of Justice Janet Protisawitz last Tuesday, the court's new majority fired the director of state courts, Randy Koschnik, last Wednesday. Friday's vote is just the latest bitter public feud as the state's highest court changes majorities. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Elizabeth Walsh.
0: In this broadcast, we let you know that Governor Evers approved some bills last Friday and vetoed others. Joining additional welfare rules on the chopping block was another bill package that would have preempted municipalities from creating local bans on gas powered vehicles, appliances, and energy. The Republican sponsors of the bills say it would have protected consumer choice, but Democrats say the bills get in the way of governments to create climate change solutions. And furthermore, Democrats say the bills weren't even necessary. For more on why the bills were vetoed last Friday and for more on the state's climate goals, WORT reporter Charlie Biloski and WORT's Shally Pittman sat down with Jennifer Geetrich, Government Affairs Director at Wisconsin Conservation Voters.
4: I'm in the studio with Charlie Biloski and we're on the line with Jennifer Geetrich. She's the Government Affairs Director at Wisconsin Conservation Voters. Jennifer, thanks for being with us. Thanks so much for having me. So let's go through what happened last Friday and what these bills proposed. What would they have prevented local governments from doing? So the three bills that
5: Governor Evers vetoed on Friday would have provid- prohibited the state of Wisconsin and local government from banning fuel sources for electricity, for the use in transportation, and for um, gas-powered appliances. So basically all three of these bills would have made it much harder for the state of Wisconsin and local communities around our state to transit to cleaner, more uh, efficient appliances, transportation options, and fuel sources.
4: And give us the context for how these bills came about. There is some national context here. Some states have already successfully had uh, governments banning gas-powered appliances and vehicles. So has anything been proposed in Wisconsin, or is that uh, more of a preemptive move? So these bills
5: were completely unnecessary. Um, As far as I know, no community in the state of Wisconsin or state agency uh, was proposing to ban any of these options. Um, but even if they were, it's still the right of local communities to be able to uh, decide the quality of life for their constituents. So we were opposed to this bill, both on the principle of it of you know the legislature telling communities they couldn't um, have a say in their in their communities, but
4: also because they were completely unnecessary. So Republicans who proposed the bill said it would have supported consumer choice. It would have left a option open to consumers. Sometimes gas-powered vehicles, appliances can sometimes be cheaper. Let's play devil's advocate there. What's your objection to that?
5: Well, again, no community in the state of Wisconsin was proposing to ban any of these things. So that was a a completely disingenuous argument by legislators. But the reality is, climate change is a huge issue facing our state. There are a number of um, communities and programs that is looking to transition Wisconsin from a completely um, or very heavily dominated fossil fuel using state into cleaner sources of energy and using cleaner and more efficient Uh, products and services. So by taking a position, by putting their thumb on the scale and saying local communities and state agencies can't uh, even consider that into the future, they're putting their their scale or their thumb on the scale of dirty fossil fuels. And that was the biggest problem we had with this bill.
4: What reasoning did Governor Evers give last Friday when as he was vetoing them? What did he say?
5: Well, um, Governor Evers rightly pointed out that he has um, directed the state of Wisconsin to treat climate change as a very serious problem that we needed to address. And so there are a number of plans that he has to transition Wisconsin to cleaner sources of energy towards cleaner uh, transportation options. And these bills um, were an attempt to limit the ability of local governments to have a say in how they what options they provided their constituents so I think he kind of was going both at the right of local communities to decide how they uh, how their communities are run but then also the ability to keep all options on the table for climate change
6: so what does Evers's clean energy plan entail exactly how will we move away and towards carbon-free electricity
5: well, that's a great question. So, Governor Evers put the directive out um, over a year ago, and um, the state of Wisconsin came up with a plan. Uh, it's the, and you can find it on the state's website for the clean energy plan. They have about 70 different strategies for how we can reduce our energy use, and it's everything from promoting um, clean energy options at all all levels of government, um, making sure our schools and buildings and homes use as little energy as possible, so we're investing in energy efficiency. There's also a lot of options looking at how we can make sure our transportation options are cleaner, so that we have more transit, that we have more options for electric vehicles, and they have a whole um, section on how uh, we can make sure that we have more energy-efficient uh, appliances. And I think the biggest uh, exciting part of it was that it also looked at it from an environmental justice perspective and a workforce development perspective. So there were options, or there were uh, incentives or programs in there. For how we can actually make that transition so that people can have better air, we can have a better climate, but we can also make sure that uh, businesses and workers in Wisconsin benefit from that transition.
6: Uh, how are we planning on generating this electricity that will replace the natural gas?
5: Well, here in Wisconsin, um, we are still very heavily dependent on on uh, fossil fuels, particularly natural gas and coal. Uh, Right now we spend about $14 billion out of state for that fuel every year. And so part of the um, Governor Evers clean energy plan and and the goals of a lot of communities in Wisconsin, including Madison, is to move towards getting more of our energy from clean sources like wind and solar um, and geothermal. And so that's really where we are putting our efforts here as a state it is um, making sure that we can um, put solar on our homes, but then also having large-scale commercial-sized solar installations so that we can be moving towards a, a 100% clean energy here in the state.
6: So are the resources required to manufacture these windmills and solar panels less than what these things will generate or more? And what happens in about 15 to 30 years' time when these windmills and solar panels need to be replaced?
5: Well, I think that's a great question. One of the things that we are learning is how to recycle a lot of the components of these. And I think that that is going to have to be a pretty serious commitment that we make. But currently, in um, you know, if we were to continue on the path we have right now of continuing to burn coal and natural gas, one, not only is that um, really costly in terms of public health and the impacts to uh, our planet from extreme weather events like flooding and, and droughts and wildfires. But we know that we have to make this change and we have to do it quickly. So right now, the, uh, the manufacturing for wind and solar is getting to a place where we can meet all these needs, but it also needs to be um, coupled with energy efficiency. So we are not only do we need to change the kind of fuels but we need to make sure we're using as little energy as we need. And so energy efficiency is the cheapest, cleanest energy we can have. And so a lot of the clean energy programs and transitions we're looking at is coupling both clean energy from like wind and solar, but also tying it with more efficient energy use across the board.
4: I think there is a narrative that... Fossil fuels are cheaper than renewable, more climate-friendly methods. At least that's the Republican talking point here, right? That they're supporting consumer choice. Why would you support consumer choice? Because it's cheaper and you want the cheapest option. So I'm wondering if you can kind of get into that and, and help me interrogate that.
5: Sure. Well, I think there's two different things there. One, when it comes to how we generate electricity... Generating um, energy from coal and natural gas has um, become more and more expensive as we uh, have gone along because they have to account for all the different health impacts they put out. So they have to account for um, air pollution. They have to account for mercury pollution that ends up in our water. So it is becoming more expensive to generate electricity from fossil fuels. It is actually becoming cheaper wind energy for example is become cheaper than natural gas for energy uh, because once you once you manufacture the turbine wind turbine and you put it online it doesn't cost any more to operate you it doesn't it doesn't have a fuel source other than the wind so that part is also becoming more and more um, cost competitive and in fact in some cases actually cheaper than burning fossil fuels at a power plant site. When it comes to appliances and, and products, that part, it is still kind of a new generation of technologies. They, um, they often cost more upfront to have the cleaner options, but they will more than pay for themselves over time because you are using uh, less electricity Uh, across the board usually. Um, That is part of it. So like an electric vehicle costs more up front, but you're not having to buy $3, $4 gallon uh, tank of gas every
4: time you fill up. So some of this is also looking at what is the life cycle of that use. Is there anything else that you'd like to add to uh, our interview today and, and any other resources you'd like to refer listeners to? Well, I would say if people are looking uh, at more of the big picture on energy,
5: we definitely have a lot on our Clean Energy for All on our website at conservationvoters.org. And the second thing I'll say is that, you know, we really appreciated that Governor Evers vetoed these three bills. But really, we think that the the state legislature should be focused on promoting um, proactive solutions. So we would like to see them actually working to make it Easier, uh, for communities to transition to clean energy, make it easier for, uh, consumers to save money. And so now that the governor has vetoed these bills, we hope that they'll come back and do some really big picture proactive work.
4: I've been joined in the studio by Charlie Belosky. We've been talking with Jennifer Gietrich from Wisconsin Conservation Voters. We're talking about bills in the state capitol that would have blocked local governments from banning gas-powered vehicles and appliances, save for a veto from Governor Evers last Friday. Jennifer, thanks for talking with us. Thanks so much.
1: You are listening to Handcrafted Local News here on WORT. I'm your host, Sam Swartz, here with my co-host, Rachel Fields. Thanks for joining us.
0: Dane County is looking to evaluate the feasibility of building a manure processing facility as part of the county's ongoing goal of reducing phosphorus runoff and cleaning up the county's lakes. WORT producer Nate Carlin has the story. County
6: Executive Joe Parisi announced today that the county is sending out a request for proposals to determine the feasibility of a third manure processing plant. Manure processors take manure usually trucked in from local dairy farms and turn it into usable products, such as natural gas and fertilizer. The county already has manure digesters, one near Middleton and one near Wanakee. Together, those facilities processed more than 100 million gallons of manure last year. Still, the county estimates that only 10% of cow manure produced in the county made its way to a digester. And the proposed community digester is aimed at digesting around 300 million gallons of manure from 30,000 cows. Kyle Minx, the watershed manager for Dane County's Land and Water Resources Department, says the new project could simply result in a new digester. Or the project could tack on more initiatives, like phosphorus reclamation or reusing solid waste products in fertilizer.
7: We're thinking that um, digesters might be one component of a treatment plant or treatment facility. There's still some other components and the solids that come out of our digesters is still one nutrient that we're trying to figure out what we can do with that, how we can reuse that, whether that's using it as an amendment in some compost that's out there, pelletizing it, using it as fertilizer. There's still some components of of manure and what's generated from manure that we're we're hoping that this feasibility study can help answer for us.
6: The project is aimed at reducing the county's climate footprint. A major goal of the project is to reduce phosphorus runoff into the Yahara chain of lakes, where they can cause carbon dioxide emitting algal blooms. And methane from manure could be recaptured as renewable natural gas. As part of the Community Manure Treatment Project, the county is putting together a technical working group of farmers and agronomists to advise the consultants working on the feasibility of the project. Mink says that the goal is to make sure the proposal is focused on solutions that work for local farmers.
7: It's really targeted heavily towards agricultural producers, their agronomists, and then trying to get some local perspectives of how they manage manure and, and the challenges that they're facing to help inform the consultant and the RFP So we can hopefully get some better, more localized recommendations in that RFP, because certainly there's a lot of more global or national solutions that are out there, but some of those may not apply here just based on the types of agriculture we have.
6: The project is still in its initial stages, and no location has been decided. The county set aside an initial $3 million to fund the first stages of the manure processor in this year's budget. Even at its most ambitious timeline, the project is unlikely to be completed before 2025. Reporting for WORT, this is Nate Carlin.
1: This week in Forward Lookout, contributors Dylan Brogan and Brenda Conkle look ahead to This Week in Local Government. On the agenda this week, a five-year community update on preventing homelessness and elders get out around town.
8: Well, it's Monday, and that's why we're speaking with Brenda Conkle from ForwardLookout.com. We're going to find out what's happening this week in local government, and we'll start with Dane County. We had kind of an unusual meeting that happened at 11 a.m. today. It was the reclassification of appeals board. What the heck is that, Brenda?
9: (laughs) Um, When somebody asks to have their job reclassified at the county, um, they end up going through this whole process. And if it gets denied, then they can appeal it to this board. Um, They meet very rarely. Um, But this is maybe the second time this year. So um, maybe there's more of these appeals going on lately.
8: And also happening today at 530 was the City-County Homeless Issues Committee. So anything of note there?
9: They're getting an update on the community plan to prevent and end homelessness. Um, They do that every five years or so. Um, And this year, the city and county both put some money in to be able to hire a consultant to help help our community do this community plan to prevent and end homelessness. So It'll be really interesting to see once how this goes. I think they're about to be entering into the community um, input phase, so you may be seeing more about this in the future. They're also then hearing from the doubled-up community as well as talking about their recommendations for the city and county budgets.
8: what? What's the doubled-up community?
9: Um, those are folks who might be, um, some people use the words couch surfing, but usually doubled-up is more about families who You know, they have kids and so a friend or a family member or somebody else has had them come and live with them and now they're probably going to get in trouble from their landlord from having too many people in their apartment. But um, yeah, so it's it's a sort of a hidden homeless population.
8: Let's turn now to Tuesday at 5:30 we have the Equal Opportunity Commission and they got started or they're getting started at 5:30. I had a hybrid meeting on Tuesday like we said. So yeah, give us the details of that Brenda.
9: Probably the biggest thing they'll be doing is they'll be hearing an update on the county equity plans. Um each of the departments at the county has to uh, present one at budget time every year. And so they'll be getting an update on how that's going. And then they have a whole bunch of reports about Juneteenth and the Henry Bylas Zoo work plan for how they're going to try to fix some of the issues there. Um, so those are probably some of the highlights.
8: On Thursday at five thirty, we have a hybrid meeting of the Health and Human Needs Committee. Definitely an important committee for the county, and looks like they they have a fairly packed agenda.
9: They do. They have. Um, they don't have anything else on the agenda except for all the referrals from the uh, from the county board, but. Um, they have a couple of leases that they'll be signing for the joining for forces for family stuff. They have uh some affordable housing projects at 831 and 871 Center Drive in the village of Oregon. And then they have some reclassifications of some social worker positions at the county. And then they are also gonna be adding the village of Marshall to the Dane County Urban County Consortium, which will make that community of uh eligible for some additional funding, and I think some affordable housing projects. And then they are also going to be looking at some homebuyer assistance programs.
10: Very
8: cool. Let's turn now to the city of Madison and Monday at 530. So already in progress, something kind of fun, the Sister City Collaboration Committee, one of the, yeah, the, this is a, a committee that likes to celebrate things, <laughs> don't they? They
9: do. Um, and they will be, um, they usually get program reports from each of the different uh, sister cities that they have. And I I think we're up to maybe 12 or 13 now. So it seems like every couple of years we add add another sister city. Um, And then they'll be talking about their work that they do at the farmer's market and the city banner that they have there. And then they will be talking about every year they have an annual Sister Cities event. And so they will be talking about probably planning for that.
8: And on Tuesday at 3.30, just a, a heads up, we have a notice of a possible quorum of the Common Council. And this is something at the state capitol. So what are alders doing at the capitol?
9: <laughs> it did seem kind of unusual, but the Wisconsin Women's Business Initiative Corporation, also commonly called LIBIC, um, will be having a reception and a program su- uh, celebrating the work that they do. Um, They do a lot of microloans, and then they help women businesses get up and started. And so their event will be at the state capitol, and there has been several members of the council who have been invited to that.
8: Okay, and then on 10 a.m. on Wednesday, we have the Street Use Commission, and that's a good way to find out what's happening around town. So, yeah, who's looking to have an event on a street?
9: Yep. so the, the Wisconsin Department of Transportation is going to be filming something, um, and it will be at Raymond Road. <laughs> um, so there's going to be a street closure there. Um, That won't be until August 16th. Um, And then the um, LVM Neighborhood Association is having a resource fair. The YWCA will be having a block party. There's the Monroe Street Festival, the Willie Street Fair, and something called Run Wild. Um, that one's a new one to me. Don't know what that is. And then, of course, everybody's favorite, the Great Taste of the Midwest. That's always at Olin Park. And then there's a bunch of moving days, so that time is upon us. So you may tell by all the junk piling up on the curbs downtown, but several of the larger apartment buildings downtown also have to close the streets for various uh, amounts of time.
8: Yeah, I think that Run Wild event is some sort of zoo race.
9: (laughs) Could be, you never know.
8: All right, 4.30 on, what is that, Wednesday, we have the Board of Park Commissioners Uh, And so the superintendent will be giving a report for August. And anything else uh, that we should be aware of?
9: Yeah, they'll be taking a tour of Warner Park. Um, And Warner Park is rather large. And they will be visiting various parts of Warner Park. So they'll be going to the Beach House and then the Community Recreation Center and then the Reservable Shelter. And then they will be going over to Trailsway. And there is an event there called Parks Alive. So they'll be joining that event and just checking out Warner Park and all the things that it has to offer there.
8: And on Thursday, we have the Community Development Authority. They're having a virtual meeting at 430. Uh, Yeah, so this is, you know, this committee does a lot of important work and they're going to be going over some leases, it looks like.
9: Yeah, um, they run the um, village um, park. um, And so they have a lease with Luna's Groceries there, as well as for Lane's Bakery. Um, and then they're also later in the meeting, they're going to be talking about potentially selling a portion of that property to um, the community access community health center, which is right there next door neighbors right there. So they'll be discussing that and they're going to go into closed session. Prior to that, they'll also be talking about the triangle area, um, which is at by Brittingham Park, and they will be talking about the master plan for that area.
8: Big new development happening right there. Exactly. Uh, all right. Before we go, on Friday at 10 a.m., there's a notice of uh, possible quorum uh, for the Common Council again at uh, the Bayview Foundation. And looks like Alder Sabrina Madison has invited her her colleagues to some event.
9: Yep. Um, they are going to be meeting with the Bayview Community Center leadership right there in that triangle area that we just talked about. And they're going to be learning more about um, their recent uh requests for proposals that they had submitted um, and the type of programming that they want to do there. Oh, yeah.
8: And Alder Madison uh, represents the Far East Side, so she must have a special interest in this.
9: Yeah. I mean, it's a very diverse community down there, and I think there's a lot of interest in seeing what's so successful there. Um, And so I think there's lots of reasons to to be checking that out. Well, I love
8: these notices of quorums. It means the Alders are getting out around town. Getting some work done. (laughs) <laughs> yes hopefully brenda conkle she's always getting some work done and you can check that out for to see dane county and Madison uh, meeting times and agendas just head on over to forward lookout thank you brenda for giving us your time today
9: welcome
0: this saturday marks the six-year anniversary of the death of heather hayer in charlottesville virginia Contributor Harry Richardson walks us through the protests that led to her murder, as well as the ramifications that the event has had since.
1: For Joe Hill and Cesar Chavez, who fought in their own time. For our brothers and our sisters, up and down that picket line. For the unnamed and unnumbered, who struggled brave and
9: long.
10: For the union men and women, standing up and standing strong. This Saturday, August 12th, is the anniversary of the day anti-racist activist Heather Heyer was killed and 19 were injured in a white supremacist terror attack in Charlottesville, Virginia in 2017. Heather was one of thousands of the counter-protesters against the Unite the Right rally of the neo-Nazi Ku Klan activists, and other white nationalists and anti-Semites. She was hit by a speeding car that went into the crowd driven by a self-described neo-Nazi, James Alex Fields, Jr. Fields was pictured at the earlier Unite the Right protest, holding a shield with the logo of Vanguard America. Elsewhere in the city, another group of fascists viciously beat DeAndre Harris, a young African-American education worker leaving him with multiple injuries, including a spinal injury. Following the rally, President Trump infamously declared there were fine people on both sides. A video recorded at the scene shows a gray Dodge Challenger accelerating into the crowd at the pedestrian mall, sending bodies flying, and then reversing at high speed, hitting yet more people. Witnesses said the street was filled with people opposed to white nationalists bearing Confederate flags and anti-Semitic epithets. According to The Washington Post. The 20-year-old Fields, from Ohio, wore clothing associated with the neo-Nazi group American Vanguard that weekend, has spent every day since the murder incarcerated. Across June and July of 2019, he pleaded guilty to 29 hate crimes and received a life sentence in federal court, and then 419 years in a Virginia court, after being found guilty of Hires' murder, hit and run, and eight counts of malicious wounding. A federal court also ordered Fields to pay $12 million in damages to plaintiffs as part of a broader civil suit against the rally's right-wing leaders. In the months before the attack, which was meticulously planned on the social media platform Discord, they discussed everything from what to wear to what to bring for lunch, to whether they could hit protesters with cars and claim self defense, which is of course precisely what happened, said Amy Spidelick in a Democracy Now! interview last May. Spidelick is the executive director of Integrity First for America, the nonprofit that successfully sued the white supremacist organizers of the Unite the Right rally and won. The intent was to bankrupt the ultra right groups involved in the rally and hinder their ongoing efforts. The court ordered the payment of twenty six million in punitive and compensatory damages against every single defendant, finding them liable for this violent conspiracy. The case was filed in behalf of nine injured Charlottesville community members. The penalty was brought against two dozen organizers, Richard Spencer, groups like the National Socialist Movement, certain clan groups, a who's who of the nation's violent white supremacist movement. Spitalnik noted that their case was now serving as a model for lawsuits going after those responsible for January 6th. She said, accountability is crucial, but you can't simply sue or prosecute your way out of this problem, and it needs to go hand in hand with preventive measures. Spittelnik talked about the interconnectedness of the cycle of white supremacist violence from Charlottesville, Pittsburgh, Poe, El Paso, January 6, to an extent, fits right into this picture and of course now, Buffalo, in addition to a record number of hate crimes against so many communities, the black community, the Asian community, and so many others. Spilnick said that the society must look at root causes to build systemic measures to prevent future tragedies. Rules governing social media would be one important step. She notes you can't separate the normalization of white supremacy on the right with a broader anti-democratic movement we are seeing, the anti-abortion actions, the anti-LGBTQ plus Actions: voter suppression. Heather hires mother in Susan Bro. Meanwhile, the head of the Heather Heyer Foundation has spoken out against anti-protest laws, particularly those that would provide civil or criminal immunity to drivers who hit demonstrators like her daughter with their vehicles. Oklahoma's 2021 law bans both. bro said it's declaring open season on protesters. Since when do we allow the public to become judge, jury, and executioner? Because that's what this amounts to. Let's go hunt protesters. Susan Bro on Democracy Now! talked about the last time I got to see my daughter was to identify the body and sign the papers for her cremation. And I held her bruised hand and bruised arm and I said, I'm going to make this count for you and that's what I've done and I will continue to do. You don't get to knock down my child and silence that voice without 500 more rising up. Don't get to do that. For the Past is in Past, I'm Harry Richardson.
0: Today, as part of Harry's Monday Movie Review, we hear about a new season of a beloved gothic show on Netflix. Then Harry walks us through a new documentary that covers the rise and fall of the influential Negro League in baseball.
3: Finally, you will be among peers who understand you. Maybe you'll even make some friends.
2: Want to take a stab at being social? I do like stabbing.
10: That was a Clip from the trailer for the new series, Wednesday. Several of the earlier episodes were directed by Tim Burton, no stranger to the macabre. Wednesday is the latest spinoff of the old nineteen sixty four Adams Family TV series. This is an enjoyable combo horror, murder mystery, with a fun cast led by Jenna Ortega as a teenage Wednesday Adams. As our story opens, she's a goth loner at her high school. Sadly, she's alienated from her parents, but when she finds her pudgy brother Pugsley stuck upside down in his locker, she has to act. As she says to the guilty jocks, no one tortures my brother except me. She then releases piranhas into the pool with predictable results. One jock loses a testicle. She's promptly kicked out of school and packed off to Nevermore, a school for fellow outcasts. To make matters worse, It's the boarding school where her parents met and fell in love. Gomez is played this time as a harmless sort by Luis Guzman, with a terrific Catherine Zeta-Jones, making a very convincing Morticia. Morticia hopes Wednesday will love the school as much as she did. Gomez seems just sorry to see her go. Wednesday is left to the not-so-tender mercies of the strict headmaster, Larissa Weems, Gwendolyn Christie, a former classmate of the Elder Adamses. Larissa gets a perverse satisfaction requiring Wednesday to room with a perky Enid, Emma Myers. She's also one of the werewolves, but hasn't turned yet. Enid gives Wednesday the nickel tour of the campus explaining the various cliques, fangs, vampires, furs her would-be fellow werewolves, stoners, gorgons, and scales, sirens. The sirens are led by the meanest of the mean girls, Bianca Joy Sunday. Sunday is scary in the role, but also the clearest character, not a high school student. Wednesday literally crosses swords with Bianca early on, setting up a rivalry that lasts several episodes. But the real scary thing is a monster lurking in the woods, taking out normies, the wary townies, and outcasts alike. The local sheriff, Jamie McShane, keeps telling everyone that it's a bear, but no one believes him. Wednesday soon decides to discover what is really going on. As a fan of the old show, I enjoyed the later episodes that brought in the Adams family for a school reunion, an episode with Uncle Fester, Fred Armisen, looks and acts just like the original Fester from the TV show Jackie Coogan. Armisen, the co-creator and co-star of Portlandia, seems to be having a great time. The last two episodes were especially exciting and offered a satisfying conclusion to the series. It's already been renewed by Netflix. Hopefully the Struck Studios will make a fair settlement with the writers and actors soon and this show will stay on schedule. Up next, a good documentary on a lesser known but very important sports story. There were
6: African-American professional ballplayers in the 19th century.
5: But segregation starts to tighten its hold. Well, what do you do?
2: We can do this on our own.
10: And that was a clip from the trailer for The League by veteran African-American director Sam Pollard. Pollard also recently directed two other fine documentaries, MLK, FBI, and Louds County and the Rise of Black Power. He's directed several docs on other African American sports figures. The League tells the story of the dramatic rise and fall of the Negro Baseball League. The League existed from 1920 to 1951, but as the documentary points out, African Americans played baseball from the beginning in the post-Civil War era. Back then, for a few years, there were teams that allowed a couple of African-American players per team. The doc tells the sad story of players being excluded from the professional teams. Blacks formed their own teams and briefly played against white teams, but white racism ended that too. Teams came and went until 1920 when Andrew Rube Foster, a player owner, convinced several teams to join together in a league. The doc, 24 years in the making, also highlights several other owners like Gus Greenlee and Etha Manley, one of the few women owners she's a lively interviewee. Bob Motley, Negro League umpire and father of producer Byron Motley, narrates most of the movie. There are also interviews with fans like the late Maya Angelou, players like Satchel Paige, and with Rachel Robinson, Jackie Robinson's spouse. It also talks about the hard life of the players on the road in segregated America, relegated to the black section of town and limited to black-run restaurants. The players didn't have a union, and often lived on an on-the-road diet of peanut butter and bread. That was all they could afford. The movie is at its strongest showing the lively play of African Americans and how they changed the game and the nation for the better. The league finally notes the inevitable fall of the Negro Baseball League with the first day of Jackie Robinson playing for the Dodgers, April 15, 1947. A fine documentary, I highly recommend it. For WRT's Monday Movie Review, I'm Harry Richardson.
1: And that does it for our show. Thanks for listening to WORT's Local News at 6. Your reporter tonight was Elizabeth Walsh. Charlie Belosky was your interviewer. Special thanks to feature contributors Harry Richardson, Brenda Conkle and Dylan Brogan, and Nicholas Leet for technical production. Victor Calzoni engineered the show tonight. Nate Carlin produced this newscast and wrote your headlines. And Shally Pittman is the news director here at WORT. I'm your host, Sam Swartz.
0: And I'm your host, Rachel Fields. Stay up to date with the WORT local news podcast. Subscribe on iTunes podcast, Spotify, and wherever else you listen. Up next is going to be the most free form show on your radio dial, the Access Hour. Have a great night.